The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 23 begins with Umura and Giryos' level ups. They've each made it to level 3. That's quite an accomplishment. After, the story picks up from where we left off, with the party being attacked by a giant rock python. It's a tremendously dangerous creature who, after scoring a hit, inflicts damage each round automatically. Worse, as a five-hit die monster, it has lots of hit points and is difficult to kill quickly. During the encounter, our brave woodsman, and some might even say the leader of the party, quickly finds himself caught in the tightening coils of this creature. Although Harl, Gyrios, Umora, and Eridine act quickly, delivering blow after blow to the serpent, Ultimately, they were not quick enough. Kagan's spine is snapped in two moments before the creature could be slain. Kagan is now the second PC death in Tale of the Manticore. I don't mind telling you that it breaks my heart to lose him. He'd come so far and endured so much, and he was so close to level three. If it had not been for the battle with those fire beetles, where they scored a couple of lucky hits, he would have had the hit points to last just a little bit longer, which is all he would have needed. Well. The dice have decided that we must carry on. Perhaps we'll find that when one hero falls, another might rise in their place. Chapter 24, Part 1, Day 25, Evening. The sun was settling beneath the cloud line, washing everything with a palette of dazzling colors and making a vista of wonderment. Fiery oranges mingled with coral pink and velvet purples. Cleneth Stonecarver, Lord of Dwervar, had seen it many, many times. Thousands of times, in fact. Wrapped in her cloak of kidskin and lined with fox fur, she gazed at the darkening zenith. No gust of wind lifted her heavy white hair tied up with thread of gold in a single huge braid and draped over her left shoulder. This was the Skundrumwar, the windless rise. True to its name, no wind brought the chill to their ancestral home. Normally, this experience of standing at the great doors and watching the sun setting slowly filled her with a sense of peace and grace. But not today. Her close friend and seneschal of the High Forge stood silently at her side, keeping her company and speaking to her now and then in a quiet voice. Valiador and Cleneth had been waiting by the portcullis for an hour before he inevitably found them. He'd sauntered up to them with a scowl on his face, 
his various supporters in tow. Ah, Lady Glenneth Stonecarver. Taking a break, I see. Have the duties of the throne tired you? Glenneth sniffed. Barrack Ironskin. Recognizable anywhere by his hammer-sharp wit. Barak grunted in laughter. <clears throat> you look like you're waiting for someone. Is there something you think you know? Quipped the other dwarf. Spit it out and have done. Me? No, no. You simply seem tired. I thought I might come by and see if you needed anything. Replied Barak, grinning over his shoulder to his friends. You've got nothing I need. I'm sure of that. Returned Kleneth. If you've nothing to say, leave us be. Testy, testy, taunted Barok, holding up his hands in mock surrender. Kleneth regarded him with hard eyes. Stay then, or go. Do as you will. Why not give your tired feet a rest? Take a seat on the throne. You should enjoy it while you can. Barok chuckled. Now see here, began Valiador, who had held his peace until he could hold it no longer. Don't, soothed Kleneth. It's what he wants. But my lady, he goes too far. That was a barely concealed threat, reasoned Valiador. I see you've got your feeble steward to do your fighting for you, as always. How are you, Glimmerax? How's your lovely wife? Kleneth bit her lip. He was trying to bait her by attacking her friend. She would not give him the satisfaction of a reply. Now Barak turned back to the venerable chieftess. His falsely jovial expression dropped flat. Mogi's blood is on your hands, he said. His words cut like knives. If not for you, he'd still have all his fingers and his wits. Kleneth could resist the bait no longer. You bleat like a goat and smell worse. You go too far, Ironskin. This time- Milady, interrupted Valiador. Look. A short distance away, where the small trail began that led to Grunmog's shrine, the sun's fading rays glinted off plate mail armor. She saw her young cousin Harl turn the bend, followed by a trio of humans. Even from this far away, she could see that they all wore dark expressions. They walked as though they each bore a heavy load of ore on their back. Harl's face was dark with shadow. Be gone, Ironskin. Trouble me no more, and be gone. Barak surveyed the approaching group with a single eye, a deepening frown creasing his scarred face. A sneer curled his lip. He hawked and spat a large <laughs> globule of saliva to his feet. Be gone, she repeated. I will deal with you another time. Barak turned to leave, but paused, looking at each of his followers. Is it not just as I said? They come, even now. Our pigeon lord will invite them in. Why not give them our treasures too, and our secrets? She will lead our people to ruin. Just wait and see. Barak pivoted to face Lord Kleneth. He seemed about to say something more but then apparently thought better of it and stalked back into the vastness of the Citadel's Great Hall. His followers departed as well, close on his heel. Kleneth heard his footsteps fade away as Harl and the humans approached. As he drew closer, she could see that what she had thought was shadow was something entirely different. He was covered from head to toe with something dark. Welcome home, son of the mountain. If that be blood, I hope it is not of thine. A guilty look crossed Harl's features, and he shook his head. What in Gruenmog's name has transpired? She asked. Many things, Harl said, nodding. He felt and sounded as though his mouth were full of rocks. Many things. All of them bad 
Hail and well met, traveler. My name is Kylan, and I'm the host of the Threat Dice Podcast. Come join us every Friday as we talk everything about tabletop RPGs. We've covered topics like alignment, how to run a session zero, magic, charisma, world building, homebrewing, and RPG system topics like Pathfinder, Numenera, Zweihander, and more. We have advice and discussions for GMs looking for new ways to approach old topics and for players who want to broaden their horizons. Come find Threat Dice on Twitter, at TumbleDie, and every Friday on your favorite podcasting app. Chapter 24, Part 1, Day 25, Late Evening, Party Status. Harl has been restored to full hit points, and so has 16 out of 16. Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points. Gyrios, 14 of 14 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Shield. The throne room of the High Forge was located at the far end of the Great Hall, past a set of double doors which mimicked the Citadel's main front doors in looks, if not size. A pair of cast-iron-helmeted dwarven busts kept sentinel over each corner, staring at each other when the doors were shut, and into the Great Hall when they were open. Upon entering, visitors were forced to climb a wide set of stairs set at a shallow incline before reaching the throne. The design was such that all petitioners to the reigning dwarven lord would be forced to look up, whereas he, or in this case, she, could look down. In addition to this psychological boon, there was also a tactical advantage in the case that the citadel was ever breached and the throne room was forced to serve its second function as a bastion. At the top of the steps was a cubicle space 20 feet wide, long, and tall, where the throne itself was situated. If a map were to be drawn of Dwarvar, the map maker might well notice that the throne room sat as a head on a body atop the Great Hall, and that the two perpendicular corridors leading into the living and working spaces exited as though they were arms outstretched from shoulders. The throne itself was a grand, if minimally designed, work of master masonry, fashioned of pink-veined white marble. Apart from the throne, the throne room had four distinct features. Beyond the throne, set into the wall, was a huge disc of the same white marble. It was the twin of the disc that could be found in the inner sanctum of Grunmog's shrine. As its sister, the disc showed an enormous graven skull, ringed by a pattern of small alternating mushrooms and worms. From the bottom of the steps, looking up to a dwarven lord sitting the throne and framed by this grim overseer, would be daunting indeed. If this were not intimidating enough, to either side of the throne was an iron statue of a dwarf in heavy battle attire. Warhammer, gripped in both hands and held across a body clad in full plate armor. Each wore a great helm with no face visible within. The two statues were designed to add to the air of imposing might and authority, but they were not mere decorations. They had been enchanted by the solemns of an age long past to come alive and defend any dwarf who was threatened in their presence by any non-dwarf. Even while dormant, they still exuded an air of latent power and menace. The two walls that flanked the throne were covered, from top to bottom, in tapestries of exquisite detail and color. The tapestry to the left of the throne was nearly 20 feet tall and showed the emblem of the Stonecarver family. In the foreground, threads of gold banded the handle of the pickaxe. Behind, the shield gleamed with filaments of shining silver. Written in huge dwarven runes beneath the image were the words of the family crest, 
which roughly translated read, meet death head on. The tapestry on the opposite side of the room likewise covered the entire wall. This one was far more detailed. It was a mimetic piece that showed a famous battle scene any dwarf would recognize. It came from a legend from the Age of Champions, and it depicted the three most famous dwarven heroes in this part of Barath. In the design, three dwarves were locked in close combat with a huge red dragon. The dragon was so large that it could not be fully shown in the picture. Most of the wings, body, and tail were out of the frame. A smoke-spewing and scaly maw wreathed with massive fangs gaped at the trio of dwarven heroes who faced it with fearless determination. The first of the three dwarves, arranged in single file so that the artist could clearly show each in full detail, wore a glossy beard of black and a suit of golden scale mail. He held a round and silver shield against the gout of fire that burst from the dragon's throat. The shield must have possessed some potent magic, for it held back the flames, uncannily deflecting it as though the dwarves were encased in a glass bubble. The middle dwarf wore no helmet and had a wild mane of crimson hair the same hue as the dragon's scales. He gripped a white-bladed, double-headed battle-axe in his hands that seemed to emit a frosty light. A third dwarf brought up the rear of the small party. He was a greybeard and wore a horned helm. He gripped a mighty mace in one hand. The other held a huge ivory horn up to his lips. The picture showed him frozen in the act of blowing this horn. The artist had captured the moment with perfection, showing the cheeks puffed out and the brow furrowed with effort. Although the left tapestry was beautiful, this one was a work of genius. Even one with no appreciation for art might have spent hours gazing upon it and finding new delights with every passing moment. Such a close inspection of the tapestry would reveal an interesting detail. The dragon appeared to be missing one of its teeth. Girios, Umura, and Aridine had been in the throne room for some 15 minutes, studying the statues and tapestry in quiet awe, and speaking with Valiador, who offered his condolences for their fallen companion. The Elder Dwarf repeated over and over that it was a blessing Kagan had fallen in combat. And with such a mighty foe as the Dolai Anir. They had arrived in the throne room without Harl. He was elsewhere, in private conference with Lord Kleneth. In keeping with dwarven custom, Girios did not shed his armor, nor did he place his flail among their other belongings when Valiador bid them stow their packs in the corner. On the way to the throne room, they'd crossed the great hall. It was a much different place than they'd found it previously when they'd entered in the dead of night. At this time of day, it was alive with activity. Guards marched to and fro as sentries changed their post. Children ran and played, spotted the party and stopped to stare in the frankly curious way that children do. Well-dressed matrons stood off to the sides, gossiping and frowning, occasionally breaking free of their talk to reprimand their wards. The great hall was lit from above by a pattern that resembled a nebula, like a cosmic dust of illumination. Girios asked Valiador about it, and the seneschal had shrugged, explaining simply that it was old magic. There's enchantment in all the treasures of the earth, you know. We dwarves learned long ago before the age of man, how to draw them out. In fact, oh, pardon me. Valiador had to cut his explanation short to catch the attention of a busy young-looking dwarf a short distance away. It took a moment before Girios recognized him as Valiador's son, Anelian. There were a few whispered words, and then Anelian, after making a quick but deep bow in their direction, scooted back the way he had come. Valiador glanced at Aradine and his eyes crinkled as he smiled. Aradine wondered at that small smile until, later, when they had arrived in the throne room and set their packs down, the young dwarf returned, bearing an armload of folded clothing. 
He held out the bundle for her to take. I hope this will fit you, Mistress Aradine. If it does not, I can have it altered on the morrow. Aradine took the clothing and managed a whispered, Thank you, Anelian. She held in her hands a soft and rather lovely skirt and vest of kidskin. She put it on right away, right on top of her prison shift, which she then wriggled out of with impressive grace and discarded. The skirt was a little short and a little loose, and the vest was likewise wide and did not cover her belly, but more or less, it fit. It, it suits you, remarked Anelian, blushing. It's perfect, Aridine replied. Aridine then coughed, winced, and put a hand to her throat. <coughs> Ridlessly, she offered Valiador his cloak back, but the seneschal declined it. Oh, no, 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 my dear. That was a gift. It would honor me if you would keep it. Valiador and Anelian took their leave shortly thereafter, when Clenneth and Harl, accompanied by Molgi, a fully armored and dour-looking thern, and a woman, presumably his wife, arrived at the double doors. The last to enter were a young dwarf, of the age between woman and child, and two stout guards bearing the stone carver insignia on the breast of their plate and mail and holding long-handled axes. Harl, no longer covered in blood, had not only been washed, but also seemed to have been healed. A table, not usually a feature of this room, had been set before the throne, and a variety of chairs and cushions had been placed around it. Eridi noticed that a wide, shallow trunk was tucked beneath it. At Lord Cleneth's bidding, they all took their seats, with the exception of the two guards who took position at either side of the still-open double doors, and the young dwarven lady, who stood at the foot of the table looking shyly at the visiting humans. Girios, Umora, and Eridine selected cushions to kneel on, as the chairs were too low to the ground. My dear guests, intoned Cleneth, be welcome ever at our table. She paused to smile at each of them in turn, then continued. In your honor, I present the jewel of Durvar and the fire of my heart, my great-granddaughter, Ursuleth. The chieftess reclined in her chair and clapped a single time. Ursuleth, begin. The young dwarven lady adjusted her posture and placed her arms akimbo. Then, in a voice, sweeter than honeyed wine, she sang for them a song of remembrance, lamentation, and pride. A skilled singer, she tilted her head back and projected her voice so that it reverberated against the smooth ceiling. A moment of silence followed the performance, lingering as though the listeners wished to hang on to the moment. Finally, Lord Cleneth indicated an empty seat to her left and invited her great-granddaughter to sit. You do me proud, my love, she said. The sound of Ertholus's chair must have been a signal to a dwarven boy waiting just outside the doors who peeked inside and spoke to a guard. As he was sent away, Cleneth addressed her guests. My friends, I have asked you to this table to show the gratitude of the Dwarven people for your brave service to Duravar. 
Before we proceed, let me say that I am deeply sorry for the loss of your companion. Even now, my people are moving to collect his remains and return them here for whatever ceremony you deem suitable. If it is in our power to give help in this matter, you shall have it. Kyrio spoke for them all. Thank you for your understanding and your words of condolence. Harl was staring at the tabletop, looking dejected, but Lord Cleneth met Gyrios's eyes and nodded. We have more than words to offer in exchange for your service. She then looked at Thern, who scrunched his face in silent protest. He hadn't said a single word since entering, but had simply looked at Harl in disapproval. Despite his apparent reluctance, Thern got out of his seat and slid the low trunk out from beneath the table. He opened a pair of latches and opened the lid so that it blocked the view of the contents. For your service to our people, we offer you these three small gifts. The PCs are about to be presented with gifts, and not so small. These rewards are mostly for saving Molgi from the goblins, but they're also to compensate for the party's loss during the encounter with the giant rock python on the way back from Grunmog's shrine. Depending on how they score on individual reaction rolls, the characters will receive an item of different value. In addition to their charisma bonuses and penalties, I will also apply the following adjustments. Because she individually saved Molgi with a precise shot from her bow, Eridine will get plus one to her roll. With her charisma bonus, that's a plus two in total. Gyrios will give the garnet ring Kagan had found to Molgi as a memento of his brother. The ring never truly belonged to Soli, and in truth Molgi is not interested in it, but Lord Cleneth is impressed by the gesture. He will gain a plus one for doing so, which cancels out his minus one charisma penalty. Umura will enjoy no special benefits, and in fact has a minus one to her role, due to her low charisma score. I'll post the table that I use on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com if you're curious to see the range of potential gifts. I've arranged them into three categories for low, medium, or high rolls. Let's begin with Umura. Once again, she'll roll with a minus one penalty. She's rolled a six. After the penalty, that's a five. That roll just squeaks into my medium range. Umura has been presented with a gorgeous, heavy, silver necklace bearing a single huge sapphire. It's an heirloom belonging to Molgi's family. Had she rolled higher, it would have had a minor enchantment. But this piece of jewelry, though mundane, is still beautiful. It has a value of 500 gold pieces. Let's see how Gyrios rolls. His bonuses and penalties cancel each other out. So this is a straight roll. I have a 7. Like Umura, he's in the medium category and will not receive a magical item. Thern slides a large but not especially heavy item out of the trunk. It is a silver shield with the pickaxe of the Stonecarver family embossed across the front. The item has value for its materials and craftsmanship, of course, but Cleneth also tells him that owning the shield will mark him as a friend to the dwarves if he should encounter other dwarves in the future. So that no other dwarf might think the shield stolen, after consultation with Thern, she has engraved the inner rim of the shield in dwarven letters that read, To Gyrios, Servant of the Sun and Friend to the Dwarves. Finally, we have Eridine. She's a special case because it's well known that she saved Mogi's life. She will receive a magical item, but the roll will determine how strong the enchantment is. She rolls with a plus two bonus, as mentioned above. Here goes. A seven. 
plus two is nine, just high enough to make it into the high category. She receives something truly special. It's a pair of bronze bracers, which are ringed with spidery inscriptions written in ancient Dwarvish. In game terms, this is a pair of bracers of defense AC6. While wearing them, Eridine will have an armor class of five due to her dexterity bonus. A quick reminder if this is confusing that basic D&D uses descending armor class. The three companions express their gratitude for the gifts, showing them to each other to admire and hold in the light. By the time they've put them on or placed them with their packs, servants have appeared at the door, bringing with them trays of fragrant and strange foods, meats, mushrooms, and steaming hot vegetables. Despite being famished when the food and drink was put in front of them by smiling porters, Umura, Eridine, and Gyrios could not help feeling a rising in their gorges. Each guest was given a plate covered with sliced mushrooms of various textures, sizes, and colors, ranging from leathery and tan to gelatinous and gray. On top was what at first appeared to be some kind of soft-boiled vegetable, until they noticed that it had two rows of tiny feet and a cluster of eight stubs where a number of antennae appeared to have been amputated by the chef. All three of them frowned at the food and immediately reached for their mugs. They sniffed at the contents before, satisfied that it was just plain beer, bringing the mugs to their lips. Kleneth watched their reaction to the meal with more curiosity than concern. Does the food suit you? The Kubrick is rich in filling. Good for a hangover. We are... Gyrios groped for a polite way to say it. Not used to such fare. You mean the Kubrick? Try it. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Gyrios looked at the rubbery thing on his plate and suppressed the urge to gag. Insects in general, we do not eat them. Oh. Lord Kleneth looked confused. I was sure that you did. Why, in my travels I have visited river towns where they eat crayfish often, and seaside towns where they eat many, many varieties of sea insects. What are those things called? She searched her memory and made pincer movements with her hands. Crabs, offered Umura. Yes, quite. Crabs. Lovely sea bugs they are. Why, one time I... Lord Kleneth stopped in mid-sentence. Valiador had appeared at the door, looking pale. He was wringing his hands together. Once he'd made eye contact with Kleneth, he shook his head enigmatically and was gone again. Without missing a beat, Kleneth indicated to her guards to close the doors and turned back to Umura. Yes, yes, crabs. Wonderful food. As I was saying... Once again, she was cut off. This time, by a strangled cry from beyond the room, and then a grating crunch as the double doors to the throne room closed on something hard and metal. All eyes turned in the direction of the sound. The doors had shut on an oversized iron tankard. It lay on its side, spilling its frothy contents on the floor. At first, everything was silent and still, then a scarred and ugly face appeared in the crack between the two doors. Barok Ironskin glowered at the assembled dinner party, and then, slowly, a sickening smile spread across his face. The face withdrew for a moment, and something was thrown through the parted doors. A small wet thud followed, and the dinner party rose in their seats to gape in horror. Anelian's head had landed midway up the stairs and was slowly rolling back down. It settled on the third step. Eyes slitted and mouth agog. No one moved. No one breathed. Then, 
An insane little laugh escaped from Olgi. <laughs> and echoed about the room. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. I'd like to read one of these great reviews right now. T. Roberts, 1001, writes, I find this so very interesting. It's a fantasy story told by one person, but it includes D&D actual play, including dice rolling and combat encounters. Definitely easy to listen to. Good for inspiration and a great story overall. Thank you very, very much, T. Roberts, 1001. This episode is just bursting with talent from the RPG community. In no special order, I'd like to thank the following for their contribution to the show. Playing Anelian Glimmerax, Ian of Roll to Save. Playing Valiador Glimmerax, Benjamin of Lawful Great Adventures. Playing Barok Ironskin, Austin Moraga of the Ironbound Chest. And finally, playing Kleneth Stonecarver, Shannon of Paradise RPG. Feel free to get in touch with me anytime. You can email me at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com or get in touch through Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, my handle is at manticoretale, and on Instagram, I'm at taleofthemanticorepodcast. The story will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. We're going to give it another go. It's a bit, a bit, more, of, a bit more zing. Oh, a bit of zing. A bit zing. Of zing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Hello. Hello. With a, hello. No, no. no. Hello. No, hello. No, wait, wait till I get through the whole thing. Ready? Wait till I, Hello with a billowing hilltop. Hello. Hello. Oh, dear. <laughs> wait till you get through the whole thing. No, no, I mean... I, I thought that was the whole thing. The whole thing is hello <laughs> with a billowing hilltop. Okay. That's the whole thing. Yeah? Okay. Okay. That was right. <laughs> Uh, that pretty much sums up the show. But if you want to find out any more, you can visit us at www.belowinghilltop.com. Is it com? Does anybody know? .org. Is it? It's .com. What do we do? What do we, what do we play? There's monsters. Um, does anybody remember? Walking around. I don't know. And, yeah. And we will be delighted if you to join us around our table as we play Dungeon. Is it 5th edition? Hello? Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We play Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry, that was me. What was that noise in the background? There will be noises in the background as we play Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition through the classic Paizo adventure path, The Age of Worms. You can expect this. Oh! Quite a bit of this. Um, I'm completely lost. This. This. I've got a bugbear in my underpants. And one of these. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> we're on Apple Podcasts and we're on Spotify and we're on TuneIn and you can find us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Uh, and we uh, hope you join us. Thanks very much. Thank you.